You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. In her sermon last week, a sermon aptly titled, There is no going back, Rachel alerted us to the fact that this was going to happen. The Israelites, so recently freed from lives of enslavement, come to Moses and Aaron and say, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, whether they actually had an abundance of meat and bread back in enslavement in Egypt is something one might well question. But what the Exodus story has very clearly told us is that they were being worked to death, making bricks for all of the Pharaoh's ambitious building projects, and that they were aching to be set free chapter 3, we read, The Lord said to Moses, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. They longed to be free. But you know, we humans can be a funny lot. Memories, individual and collective memories, can turn the past into something it never actually was. When a people has been enslaved for generation after generation after generation, it isn't easy to turn on a dime. Accustomed to a life in which Pharaoh held sway and in which any power or control you had over your own self was that which you could gain by your wits, Witness, for instance, the way that Moses' own mother managed to save him from being killed as an infant. Well, that's the way you've lived. It meant you had to really let go of a whole lot of things, habits, ways of seeing, ways of living. So as the story unfolds, what we see is that first and foremost, what they have to change is a mindset that says, we are Pharaoh's slaves, to a new mindset that said, we are God's people. We are God's people, and we have to learn to trust that God will indeed provide even here in this desolate place. Trust comes slowly. No matter what they'd seen during those final days in their captivity and in their flight across the Red Sea, Trust comes slowly, even as both bread and meat, manna and quails are faithfully provided. The trust comes slowly. 
getting Egypt and all of its old patterns of thinking washed out of their system comes slowly, which is why they will end up having to spend 40 years wandering in that Sinai wilderness. Only two of those who'd originally fled enslavement in Egypt, just Joshua and Caleb, actually made it through the full 40 years to cross the River Jordan and enter the Promised Land. Along with those two, it was the children and even the grandchildren of that original group of freed people that crossed over. Even Moses was able to see across to the land of promise from the top of Mount Nemo, but that was all. That's how deep in the bones of the people the legacy of enslavement had set. That's getting about 40 years ahead of myself, so let's turn back to the story of the provision of the manna and the quails. When Moses addresses the people, his address actually includes a little bit of a jab. He's heard from God that this food will be provided. They are not to worry. And so he goes to the people and he says, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Moses and Aaron. Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. What he's saying to the people is they need to stop this grumbling, this, why have you brought us out here to die, Moses? Because what they really need to do is pray to their God, who is the only one who can provide for them in the first place. Change your attitude, people, is what he says to them, in effect. And then the story continues. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. What is it? which in Hebrew is a word, manhu, which we anglicize to manna. Prior to the arrival of the manna, the quails, prior to Moses kind of jabbing, dressing down the people for their bad attitude, he'd received one other crucial piece of instruction to share with the people, which would become part of their ongoing maturation part of the beginnings of a new way of seeing and being. The people were to go out in the morning and gather enough of that manna just for that day, just enough for that day, except on the sixth day of the week, on Friday, they were to gather enough for two days. For on Saturday, the seventh, the Sabbath day, there would be no manna and no gathering to be done. A few verses further comes the story of how some of the people ignored this instruction to gather just enough for the day. People 
who tried to hoard. Guess what? The hoarding doesn't work. Quote, they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of what they gathered until the next morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. It's kind of a bit of his stance a fair bit during Exodus. But this fouling of the hoarded bread doesn't happen with the Sabbath manna. Because the Sabbath manna is meant to be a part of their deeper learning and formation as a freed people, as God's people. Listen to how Amy Erickson puts it. She writes, In the ritual practice of daily gathering of food that falls from the sky, they will learn with their very bodies to come to trust their God. They will learn to share their basic human resources equitably. They will come to know a food distribution practice antithetical to the one designed by Pharaoh. And the keeping of the Sabbath will remind them that they are more than technologies of empire. They are human beings who, like their God, require rest and rejuvenation. Even in crisis, with chaos all around, Sabbath practice is essential to their lives and their emerging identities. Well, this theme of there always being enough, no need to hoard, there is enough, everybody will have their fill, this theme of the sharing of basic human resources equitably is picked up on by Jesus in the parable we read tonight, but in a way that presses things right up to the wall. Now, Jesus is telling his parable in the context of a different kind of captivity for Israel. They are not enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, but they are subsisting as a vassal state under the rule of the Roman Empire, under Caesar. Under Roman rule, the people were allowed to maintain their traditional religious practices centered in the temple so long as they obeyed the other laws of empire. And some of the people, notably the Pharisees, lived a thoroughly devout and faithful practice of the traditional faith believing that the fullness of the kingdom would be brought about if the nation came to practice faithfully within the Torah. Torah righteousness, in other words, was the key to the coming of the kingdom. Others, perhaps not quite so scrupulous, were living within the faith, Think here of the disciples. They are observant Jews, yet they didn't worry so much that day when they're walking across the field and as they go, it's the Sabbath and they're plucking a few grains and eating them. They're not quite that panicked. Devout, yes, but a little bit more limber. And then there were those, like the notorious tax collectors, who were in total collusion with the empires, Jews who had essentially gone to the other side, to the extent that they were considered traitors and outcasts. 
There were others in that territory also considered outsiders because they were living lives that didn't honor the Torah or perhaps because they were Gentiles or Samaritans. It's in this context that Jesus tells this parable of the kingdom. We begin with the vineyard owner who needs to get his grapes harvested. So early in the morning, he hires laborers, promising to them the usual daily wage for their work. A few hours later, he hires more workers, and then again at noon, and at three o'clock, and at five o'clock in the afternoon. And at the end of the workday, roughly six o'clock, he lines them all up for their payment. And he begins with those he just hired an hour earlier, ending with those who'd worked the full day. And surprise, as they come by, the vineyard owner pays them each exactly the same amount. Each one gets a full day's wage, whether they'd worked an hour or three or six or the full day. Those who'd worked that full day are outraged. The vineyard owner addresses one of them saying, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last, those who work just an hour, the same as I give to you who worked all day long. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? Well, yes, actually, those who work the full day are filled with envy, to say nothing of resentment on account of the generosity of the landowner. Yet Jesus' insistence here that this is precisely the way that the kingdom of God works. We see it all through his ministry as he's constantly inviting in the tax collectors and the sinners and the lost. At different points in the Gospels, he extends grace and welcome to Gentiles and to Samaritans and to others considered the consummate outsiders by the righteous devout and observant folks like the Pharisees. The kingdom has room for all of us, he's saying. Whether you've spent your whole life in harmony with the Torah, or if, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector, you just now awaken to the fact that you need to do some turning around of your life. This is what being justified by grace looks like, people. There's room at the table so long as you're willing to accept the invitation to dinner and don't mind sitting down beside someone you consider too sinful, too dirty, or maybe even too pious for your own good taste. This is the new manna of the gospel. Of course, there's enough for everyone. You can't hoard this gift of grace. You can only receive it, relish it, and trust that it will always be the one thing that will feed your heart and your soul and your mind. Oh, and you must take great delight when someone else takes up the new manna of the gospel. Someone else comes to the table you've never seen before, aren't sure you understand, maybe aren't even clear that you ever get along with, yet there they are and rejoice is the message of the parable. 
But that's not always so easy. In fact, it's precisely the thing that was so tough for those laborers who'd worked all day in the vineyard. And so very tough for the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. His resentment is that his brother has been accepted back home, reprobate that he is. It isn't fair, they protest. Nope. Nope, it isn't. It isn't fair, thanks be to God. For if grace was all tangled up in fairness, we'd all be dead ducks. Manu, manna, what is it? Well, as it turns out, it's the only thing you really need. That's what it is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.